Hello and welcome to Gripping in the Filth with me, Tom Sharp. There's a lot to be said about spiders, and a lot has been said, not all of it good. Here's what I will say. There are a lot of spiders, and they do all sorts. They act differently, they hunt differently, they live very different lives. There are a lot of different ways to be a spider. It's worth reminding ourselves of that notion of being. The being is not the same as being a person. Spiders interact with the world. Spiders experience the world differently, yes, to us, but they do. I want some insight into that. I want to take a look at a specific family of spiders to try and be a bit more specific in my spider learning. And when I look at this family of spiders, I want them to look back. And you know what they do? In today's episode, we explore the world of the Salticidae, the jumping spiders, perhaps the most relatable spiders if such a thing exists. To be honest, jumping isn't something we talk about a great deal in this episode. If we were to give another common name to the Salticidae, we could drop jumping and call them maybe the staring spiders, the dancing spiders, the gallery spiders, and of course, the gateway spiders. Because as we will discuss, these endearing creatures are an awfully good way to welcome yourself into the spider world. I have the absolute pleasure of speaking with Dr. Sebastian Echeverry, zoologist, arachnologist, science communicator and host of the BBC Earth podcast. We chatted about jumping spiders and so much more, skirting inevitably into broader discussions about what it means to care for invertebrates, what it means to learn about invertebrates and what it means to share our world with these fascinating creatures. It's a conversation that during the editing process made me message Sebastian and thank him for being such an insightful guy, so I can't wait for you to hear it. So after the musical break, join me and Dr Sebastian Echeverry as we discover jumping spiders. So today I am joined by Dr. Sebastian Echeverry, arachnologist and science communicator. Sebastian, how are you today? I'm doing great. I'm really excited to be on Grubbing in the Filth as one of the premier invertebrate-focused podcasts. Uh, this is totally my vibe, and I'm really, really hyped. I'm so glad you think so. It's it's a pleasure to have you here. Do you know what? Really naively, I sort of thought. Oh, I'm quite special because I like thinking vertebrates are cool and <laughs> most people. And then it turns out in, in entering this world, I've discovered all these people and all these communities of people, academics or, or otherwise, who share that interest. It's been a, a nice surprise, but it has been a surprise actually because because of that, you know, that attitude people have towards invertebrates and it's kind yeah, of yeah. a relatively niche thing. But it's but you are one of these people who within I hope you don't mind me saying so. Within invertebrate circles, you know, your name looms large, I think. You you're always knocking about, chatting about chatting about spiders and and find the flag for invertebrates. So it's it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Oh yeah. I, I thank you for saying those very kind words. There are <laughs> a lot of other people who inspired me or and are maybe more active at the moment. I'm working on some some things behind the scenes, but I mean, I'm here because I really love these animals. They are very, they're a really important part of my life. And I feel that, honestly, it's just fun to share them with other mm. people. And kind of chasing that fun is why I'm doing all the stuff that I'm doing. Well, that's a nice way to think about it. I mean, so, I mean, you are a scientist, you have a scientific background. Yes. Um, uh, as, as a researcher, but you also do science communication. And I know that you do photography and you have spiders as would you be happy with the word pets yeah yeah they're, so you they have are spiders pets. As pets 
I mean, how they do you... They also outreach spiders, some of them, but they're pets. Okay. It, it's quite a complicated little setup <laughs> from the outside. How, how would you kind of characterize your relationship with invertebrates? Yeah, I think if I'm thinking about invertebrates in general, mm. I mean, they're, they're a source of joy for me. They're a source of like this constant discovery that that feels a little almost like childlike, almost mm-hmm. um, that kind of distilled wonder of seeing something that you don't understand all the time because invertebrates are such a diverse group of animals that and they are so diverse but they are so underrepresented in all of the kind of media about animals sure that you have this wonderful opportunity to always be amazed and always be kind of have your mind blown absolutely and that is a feeling that is kind of rare for me <laughs> i mean otherwise you know it, it's it's something that after a certain point i i kind of reach this point with a lot of nature documentaries where every now and then there'll be something that's like oh wow okay i didn't know that but a lot of the times you see something and you kind of have seen that story already you sure. kind of know what's going to happen all right, we're going to meet some lions. We're going to go on a hunt. They're going to, you know, share their food. Yeah. Um, and to have the ability to, even without watching a documentary, just go outside and see an animal that you're like, I don't know what it's doing, but it's weird. <laughs> it feels good. Like, they just feel good to to learn about. And that that's kind of been uh, something that's gotten me through a lot of difficult times and is kind of keeping me going in starting this really strange career switch from academic research to full-time science communication true yeah so they're they're wonderful they're like truly wonderful animals and i'm very lucky to to know about them and talk be able to like talk to people about them because it's just fun well you mentioned that like the, the the nature documentaries which which so often are like focused on the savannah essentially mm-hmm. like and and elephants and cheetahs and lions and things the big mammals yeah yeah exactly if we if we sort of want to be equivalent to that like the stories that they're telling with those animals which are interesting animals and it's it's great but obviously even people that aren't interested in animals are familiar with those animals and what they Mm -hmm. do right Mm -hmm. but the things that invertebrates do kind of the equivalent things the hunting and the social lives and all those things it's not like they're far away from us right because they're just the big thing yeah in the bush, they're on the pavement, they're knocking about, and they're not. I, I, we have the opportunity to be surrounded by them, and I think that wonderment that you, that you describe, if you yeah. can have that, if you can jump into that, it's it's quite an easy world to access, really, right? Right. I think that's one of the things that I've come to appreciate a lot since I've started doing outreach is how accessible these animals are. They they are this amazing opportunity to let everyone have encounters with cool animals. Yeah. Where I know growing up, I grew up in New York City, not like middle of skyscrapers. I grew up in Queens, so there were like trees and plants and birds and stuff. But even then, all of the kind of media that I would see gives this really strong impression that like wildlife and nature are things that are happening like somewhere far away. Mm-hmm. That are like you have to go on a journey to this like 
very specific type of habitat. And that's where you'll see the big animals that, that count as wild animals, big air yeah. quotes. That count, yeah. Yeah, that count. And the the coolest thing about invertebrates, um, especially arthropods, which are for the most common group of them, is that you don't need to do that. I mean, I, I literally, like, you know, open the door to my apartment building, go outside, there's a little patch of grass that I take my dog out to, mm-hmm. and I'm seeing bark lice that have patterns on their wings that, like, kind of look like jumping spiders. And wait, are they, like, mimicking spiders to, you know, to right. to hide from predators and like that I, i'm just like glancing around these animals live in the middle of cities they live everywhere on earth and so wherever you are you can have those experiences of seeing a really cool animal maybe you grab a magnifying lens or like a little clip on lens for your camera but that's about it there's <laughs> no travel there's no special equipment uh like really advanced equipment that you need to explore those worlds and that's really cool it's like very empowering because whenever i travel whenever i go somewhere new or even i'm just like walking through the park i know that i can find a cool animal and that possibility of finding something new because also a lot of the times it's just something i've never seen before because of how many species there are of these things it is exciting and it is something that everyone can experience and it's really sad that a lot of us have not been told or you know been taught that we can like enjoy that possibility Mm -hmm. that opportunity but it's not just that people haven't been aware of this kind of world it's it's almost that there is an active pushback against it right where we want people are there comes a point for a lot of people where you know even destroying these animals becomes a kind of a, a moral act and they are seen as things that infringe on on our world and, and that's the things that we're meant to be repulsed by particularly spiders the animals that are so important to you what stopped you falling into that i guess like what given that pushback against invertebrates what allowed you to step over that or, or bypass that yeah it's a really pervasive cultural thing mm. it's a learned behavior that humans have of being you know having all these negative thoughts about arthropods, about insects, about spiders. And it's everywhere. It's, I can't say that I didn't stray into that. I just Mm -hmm. maybe didn't go as deep, but certainly, you know, I'm looking back at myself back when I was in college, even an undergraduate. And yeah, I would totally share those memes on the internet about how wasps are like the assholes and bees are cute, you know? stuff that is it feels maybe innocent and feels maybe funny and it is in every little aspect of culture from a certain from once you're at a certain age every kind of interaction that i think most people have in their education system and their their media environment has tinges either really strong or even just light things that say hating bugs is normal what normal people do is they hate bugs and even if people may not feel that way, if you get that message and you want to fit in, and we as humans have this really strong urge to do so, you act as if that's true to the point that it's basically the same. And so I wouldn't say that I'm, I was immune. Um, you know, I grew up mm-hmm. in a family that really liked animals, and I watched a lot of nature documentaries and stuff as kid, as a kid. And 
but even then, you know, I was like scared of bees and wasps right. in the yard and I didn't appreciate all these cool. I We had like a, a little garden with flowers and there were a ton of cool invertebrates that I like just ignored mm-hmm. um, for so long in my life. And I have big regrets about that. It wasn't until I was really, I would say, applying to grad school that I started considering different things. And it really wasn't until this one specific moment where I was interviewing with a professor who was like, oh, let me just show you some research that I have. I haven't like it's not on my website or anything, but here's something I've been thinking about. And they pull up this video of a jumping spider doing its courtship dance Mm -hmm. and it was you know one of those macro videos where it's super zoomed in and you actually get to see the spider's face and its expression and the way that it's moving and the colors and it was this big discontinuity right this big jump in like my expectations of what a spider is and what i'm seeing the spider doing yeah And that gap was like my brain kind of short circuited. And I was like, okay, I need to know more about this. And I like stood up and like, tell me more about what's going on here. And from that moment, I I, like that moment of, okay, I need to like, this is weird. I don't understand it. I want to understand it. It's incredible. From jumping spiders, from starting to do research on them, I started to learn about spiders in general. And then each time I found a new spider, that moment repeated to some extent, because they all have this these strange powers and adaptations, their own take on like what being a spider is that it kind of snowballed right after that. And I think what happens for a lot of us is that we don't get a chance to start. We don't get that any initial positive interaction or positive experiences with these animals as kids. It's they're not really mentioned in curricula in like classrooms, right? They may, oh yeah here are arthropods there's insects and spiders and even maybe not even that because a lot of the times spiders are grouped in under insects and that leads sure. to a whole yeah, bunch yeah. of things like the original illustration for spider-man depicting not a spider on his chest for like the oh, first really? 12 years of the run <laughs> yeah no it, it's everywhere if you look at old spider-man logos that is like objectively not a spider uh for i think I think it's the first 11 or 12 years of the that that of the logos I could find. And then it even sounds, then after that it sounds that, like a petty complaint, right? It, it, it sounds, sounds like a petty, petty. complaint, but it's pretty we should you should know what a spider looks like, right? In, in as a vague outline at least. I think that it's it's not like a moral thing, it's more hmm. indicative of how little we have exposure to these animals. Yeah. Um and how little we get a chance to learn about them because you know, you, all the listeners to this podcast, who I assume are human, I'm just going to go on a limb there, maybe some dogs there, but this would also apply to you too, probably. Sure. You're more related to sharks than spiders are to insects. They are right. really different in terms of how their bodies work, how they're arranged, what they can do. And they get lumped in together, but that really undercuts the incredible diversity that they have and it makes it so that you can't appreciate that because you think you already you already oh yeah i know about insects okay spiders are just like slightly Mm -hmm. different and that's only true to a very small extent i mean i'm to a degree i'm guilty of this right because this is an invertebrate podcast but i think Mm -hmm. the reason i wanted to do that is because it's that group of animals that receive this neglect and that are 
underrated. But yeah, you have, you know, spy, like you said, spiders and insects basically have nothing to do with each other, even though we kind of, we almost culturally see spiders as like, like the bad guys of the invertebrate world, yes. maybe? Yeah, sure. I totally like the, feel that. The predator and, and the villain of the piece, almost. If you ever watch, like, if ever there's a, a if ever there's a, like a film or a cartoon about insects where they get, mm-hmm. um, where they kind of get anthropomorphized, right? There's almost certainly going to be a scene where a spider like creeps out of the dark and it's sure. like a threatening thing. Yep. So it's interesting yeah. that because the jumping spider, right? And you had that moment with the jumping spider, mm-hmm. and I don't know much about spiders. I don't know much about jumping spiders, but what I do know about jumping spiders is that among the spiders, as as I kind of see it, they might be the most photogenic, and they might be the most kind of friendly looking. Sure. I, I, yeah, I, I think that that's a, a very common thing. And I like, I'll agree that they're gorgeous animals, like mm-hmm. truly gorgeous. Yeah. Like, even if you don't like invertebrates, if you don't like spiders, there's a lot of things about a jumping spider that make it quite appealing in the sense that like, they almost have a face in a way that a spider mm-hmm. typically doesn't. Is that fair to say? I think that is a really good way of describing both what a jumping spider looks like, but also why we connect with them. Right. So. I will start with what a spider is in general, because I okay. think that's a really important thing to, you know, we don't get that that sort of information. They are arthropods, so they have an exoskeleton that's hard, that contains the rest of their body. They have two big chunks of their body. They have their head, and then they have their abdomen. And their head is actually where all of the limbs are attached. And they have eight legs, like many people are aware of. But what you might not realize is that they actually have two, basically, arms. They're called pedipalps. So mm-hmm. they have a total of ten limbs. Just like we have four limbs, two legs, two arms, they have ten. Eight plus two. And right. the head is where the brain is, where the eyes are. But most of the spider's organs are actually in its abdomen, which is connected by this tiny little tube from the head to the abdomen. And then that's where, like digestion takes place all the reproductive stuff the lungs are in there all the good body processes besides brains and legs are all the good stuff all the good stuff it's in the abdomen that's where the silk uh spinnerets are everything's up in there in most spiders and most of them do have eight eyes though there are ranges down from zero to two four six and eight though i think four is pretty rare i think it's usually two six and eight mm-hmm. and zero obviously for the those deep dark spiders oh yeah there's plenty of cave spiders most of those eyes tend to be pretty small and kind of spread around the head (laughs) and that means that most spiders interact with their world in a way that is really really deeply different from the way that we do they interact with their world through vibration both through the ground and through the air and through tasting and smelling things but vision for them is really a backup, or it only does a few specific things. Jumping spiders, I think, stand out to humans so much because they have independently evolved a lifestyle and a way of interacting the world that parallels our own. Right. So they are one of the few very visual spiders. Their eyes are huge especially the two biggest ones in the front of their head. If you look at a jumping spider's face, their, their head is kind of like a cube shaped. Yes. If you imagine on the front of the cube, 
there's these two huge puppy dog eyes in the center and then two uh, uh secondary eyes kind of up and to the right of the main eyes they kind of look like little like uh like uh apostrophes or something right above right okay like, yeah. imagine like two capital o's and then two little like yeah. degree signs or something next to those those big eyes not only do the physics of those eyes work very similarly to the way our eyes see spiders have camera type eyes like our own and not compound eyes like those of insects they actually are like the spider's main lens if you'll pardon the pun into the world they do a lot of their living through vision and that means that when we look at them they are looking at us and when we observe their behaviors they are doing things that feel familiar because we've both had to evolve behaviors for looking around and peering at things and kind of inspecting stuff and creeping up on things that we see from a distance it is that similarity, right, that I think really helps bridge the gap. It doesn't hurt mm-hmm. at all that these spiders also are fuzzy. So right. they've evolved um, on their exoskeletons little scales, which basically kind of like the scales of uh, reptiles that in dinosaurs evolved into feathers, have evolved into these long filament-like hairs. So they, they're hairy. They've got these cute tufts. And in many cases, they're colorful. So they dismantle that, you know, shiny black spider Mm. look in a lot of different ways. They also have a kind of short little legs. So they're not spindly. Yeah. um, And their bodies are pretty compact. So they kind of like tuck up. And when they look at you, you can tell they will face you, right? They will look at (laughs) eye to eye. They will make strong eye contact. And I think that, hits this human evolutionary um, drive that we have to connect with other visual animals that share traits with us. You know, it's the reason that we like fuzzy, cute mammals because they remind us of our offspring. They've got big eyes. They've got short little squat bodies. Uh, they do cute things with their head where they like twist them side to side. It, it's hitting all of these things basically by coincidence, but it's, um, it makes it so that people can form these emotional connections with the animals a lot more easily than with spiders that are more different. Yeah. And I found that for many people like myself, they've been like a gateway spider where <laughs> people can form these connections with them, learn about jumping spiders, and then apply some of that to other spiders and and see oh yeah well they're kind of like jumping spiders in this way or they're a little different but i know that these animals are like this and so those other ones that may look different aren't monsters anymore they are just different animals if you're enjoying grubbing in the filth come and wallow with me in the horrendous world of social media you can follow grubbing in the filth on instagram and twitter on instagram it's at grubbing in the filth and on twitter it's at gitf podcast you can also email grubbingthefilth at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you, whether it's your own perspective, to share a story, a photo, or what have you. The jumping spider 
Is it Sal- Salticidae? Is that the name yeah, of the group? Yeah, Salticidae is the family of jumping spiders. It's actually the most diverse group of all spiders. Really? So out of the 50,000 known species of spiders, and we estimate that there might be close to double that out there, but there's 50,000 that we've described. 10,000, maybe 11,000 now are jumping spiders. So one-fifth of all spiders are jumping spiders. Future Sebastian here with a slight correction. I just told you that there's about 10,000 species of jumping spiders in the world, and that's probably true. What that is, is the number of species that scientists estimate are out there in total. We know about 6,000 species right now, and the rest are ones that we believe are out there based on the rate at which we're discovering new species and how much we've searched so far. So that's still a lot of species. That's still the same number of species as all mammals. That's still over one in 10 spiders being jumping spiders. But I wanted to make sure that you had the accurate info about these animals. To give some, to give that some context, in terms of the animals that many people who aren't in the invert world might be more familiar with, mammals, there are about five or 6,000 species of mammals in the entire world. And that covers everything from your like micro bats that are, you know, super teeny tiny little thumbnail signs things all the way up to blue whales is all within five to 6,000 species, jumping spiders have double that. So if we're going to kind of return to that, that, that point, and I want to be kind and gentle to people and try and usher them, you know, into the world of invertebrate fondness. But mm. if we are going to sort of play a numbers game here, invertebrates, you know, rule the roost, really. Most, oh, most yeah. things are, of all the life on Earth, right, or, or the animal life at least, mm-hmm. the majority is arthropod. So... Come and come and join my team. This is this is the place to be. <laughs> I, I do want to say, like, I think it is it is a really important point to make that a lot of the ways that we've learned about, and I say we as like students learn about animals, sure. yeah. is we study vertebrate animals. Um, that's where most of ecological research, you know, behavior research, all that stuff is happening with this group of animals. Um, and also just these are the animals that we see when we're like kids and like learning what mm-hmm. life is, right? Yeah. But that's kind of, it's kind of ridiculous in a, in a few ways because I have to, I always have to double check the exact numbers, but it's something like 93 to 95% of all known species of animals are not vertebrates. Yeah. And so you're kind of trying to learn about this huge group of something and looking at the tiniest part of it. Yeah. Which means that anything that you learn is actually, you don't know very much about the entire group because you've only studied, you know, if I gave you the whole alpha, if I gave you a book, right. And I took out every letter that wasn't, (laughs) I don't know, like N. Okay. Right. And I'm like, okay, tell me what this book's about. You'd have maybe some ideas to do with the frequency and behavior of the letter N in words. Sure. But that's about it. (laughs) It it wouldn't be a a very comprehensive picture, right? And I I do get it. I do get it because like we are vertebrates. Oh yeah. Our view of the animal world is in some way 
not scientifically so but kind of rooted in our want to to find relatable things in the animal mm-hmm. world i guess and to compare it to ourselves and and we find mammals more relatable than we find fish and and yeah i think a lot of our relationship with animals is to do with uh, an almost folkloric want <laughs> yes. to find like yes. okay lions are the kings and they are they they, they have pride and they have honor and yeah monkeys are, are cheeky little guys and they're, they're they're sneaky and they do these things and it's it's not science and it's it's kind of fun it's okay and whatever but it's interacting with the natural world for different reasons and i think that is totally okay there's a lot of wonderful richness in our culture and in our stories that we've told that have come from these kind of anthropomorphic interpretations of animals mm-hmm. what i think is incredibly important and the most difficult thing is to be able to separate that from the physical biological reality of what these animals are like sure like the real thing and that's really really hard to do because our brains did not evolve to do this our brains like you said evolved to learn about ourselves see our reflections and things and use that to to affect our situation to interpret what we're doing and what we care about and one of the i think really important benefits of scientific thinking is it is a process, is a way, a system that you can use to try to get past those biases that are built into how our brains work. And that's really, really, really hard, especially because throughout a lot of the education system, we don't really get challenged to make that distinction Mm -hmm. because some of these stories are, sometimes they happen to be slightly accurate so we tell them or they just are easier to teach and so we tell them and sometimes things we thought we knew and they change but we still tell the more common story yeah there are a lot of good and and good in in terms of they they are a sufficient explanation for why we're here Um, and i don't want anyone to feel guilty for these things because you come into a world, you don't have control over what people are teaching you. You're, you're in a world where there's this history and this education system that's in that history of these are the animals we focus on, these are the animals we spend a week on and then ignore yeah. um, or joke about killing and or mm-hmm. both. You know, for a lot of people, like, they don't have that opportunity to, to change that or, that even an, or, or even, like, the spark or an incentive to do so. It's I, I like really want to make sure that people get like, yeah, I, I totally understand why you are f- are afraid of spiders. You were taught from a kid that you should be afraid of these things. All the times that you would see them on anywhere where you went to learn, your parents, your friends, your other adults, TV, media, most of the times that you saw that animal, it was shown to be evil. And so that's what you remember because that's the only experiences you have to build off. But I think... There is so much more fun stuff in the reality of them than in the, you know, one aspect of, oh, they're they're fearsome, evil things. Yes. I realize I have like a fire truck siren going by. So, no, don't worry. It's exciting. I will pause. Big city life. No, don't you worry. It's (laughs) fine. I'm I'm at my parents' house. So, there's a good chance that you'll hear kind of like, um, old British people knocking about in the background and talking about <laughs> um, the big conversation of the day is that cheese smells too strong. It's got to stay in the fridge downstairs. That's the thing. 
so that that might bleed through at some point. You you had that gateway into the jumping spider, right? And you mentioned that they have that one of the reasons that we that they are such a good gateway spider to use that that phrase again is that they is it fair to say they're small? Oh yeah, the, in terms of spiders, they're they're on the well. Okay, the smallest spider in the world is very very small, but mm-hmm. they are much closer to the smallest spider in the world than the largest spider in the world. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, the smallest spider in the world is about the size of if you print out a piece of printer paper and you like type a period onto it at size twelve font. <laughs> that's the size of the smallest spider in the world as an adult. So the baby would be even smaller. A jumping spider is about the size of, I guess it depends how big your hands are, but like your pinky fingernail on average. Some right. are slightly bigger, some are slightly smaller, but like that is, you know, their body length and their legs aren't so long, so they don't really add too much length to that. They are, you know, pretty teeny. Yeah, they're little, they're cute. They're, they're nice, right? They're nice looking things. But people yep. might have recognized the one that I kind of most familiar with would be like a, we call it a zebra spider. Yes. Like yeah. they're little jumpy guys. And like you said, they have these, you said puppy dog eyes. Yeah, they have these big <laughs> round, they look like butter wouldn't melt, right? But they are predators and they are, yes. the reason they have these forward facing eyes presumably relates to their hunting strategy, right? Yeah. So uh, to talk a little bit about why they look the way they do, one of the main theories about how jumping spiders evolved is that they actually evolved to hunt web building spiders. Because the thing about web building spiders is that they are really in tune with everything that's happening and touching their web and the kind of air around it. But their vision is usually pretty terrible, which means that if you can see them from outside of their web, you can actually plan an attack and get these web building spiders before they're even aware that you exist. And so the idea is that jumping spiders evolve to be able to see high resolution images from far away to be able to spot prey and then they came up with all of these incredible hunting strategies to to take advantage of their eyes so their eyes are i mean they're kind of incredible um they they've evolved kind of versions of technology that we now take for like both for granted but also as symbols of our modernism Their eyes are telescopes. Jumping spider eyes are telescopes. They have two lenses. So we invented telescopes, I don't know, like 500 years ago, if I'm remembering, maybe a little more. I mean, they've had these things for millions and millions of years within their eyes, and that's how they manage to see so well despite their tiny size. I don't think I've mentioned it. These animals have the highest resolution vision of any animal on land without a backbone and better than many animals with a backbone that are dozens of times their own size. A jumping spider's vision, their eyes are about a hundred times smaller than ours in terms of the diameter. But their vision is only about 10 times blurrier. Which means that it's actually within the normal range of human variation for vision. It's at the very low end. But if you gave a jumping spider, you know, one of those like vision tests that you might have taken in school with a little like pyramid of like letters. And it's like, okay, what's that letter? 
And if you figured out a way to ask a jumping spider those questions, and if anyone's interested, I have ideas, but if you figured out a way to get them to respond, mm-hmm. they would just barely pass. They could see that biggest letter. Right. And they would actually be, by the U.S. legal definitions, like sighted, like they wouldn't be legally blind. Right. And this is an animal that can fit on your fingernail that is i mean their eyes i'll put it another way i have a photo of a jumping spider on my pinky and i can see the ridges of my fingerprint next to them they're that small and their eyes are like three or four fingerprint ridges deep like that's how big they are yeah (laughs) they're they're incredibly small and to put it another way we don't have cameras that are that small that work that well and they managed to do this. I mean, it's it's fascinating because they they've managed to hit on a system for for seeing that mirrors a lot of what we've been doing recently with our camera technology. So I've been talking about just the two biggest eyes. They have other eyes, and course, what they've yeah. done is they've split up all the different jobs that you do with eyes into different pairs of eyes. So there are a lot of different ways that vision can be good. You can see things in really sharp detail. That's what we call resolution or acuity. And I think that's probably what like most people are thinking of. Because um, that's, you know, humans have pretty good acuity. Um, there's also color vision, so being able to tell different wavelengths of light as different from each other. There's also motion detection. So being able to see things that are moving and tell whether something's, you know, moving or if it's just a blur, or notice really small movements. And there's also seeing in low lights, having really sensitive eyes. That's the one that jumping spiders kind of gave up on. Just like us, they are day active animals. But all the other ones, they figured out. So the two biggest eyes, they see in the highest resolution. They see in color. The other eyes on their head, um, they're actually kind of, if you imagine this cube head of a spider, if they're kind of on the corners, the upper corners of this cube facing outwards they can see around themselves. So they have eyes on the back of their head, and those eyes are incredibly sensitive to movement. They don't see in color, but they can pick up really small movements, and they tell the spider, hey, there's something over here. It kind of looks like this. This is roughly the shape that it is. And then the spider can turn their head to look at it, just like our eyes Hmm. will detect stuff and lock onto it. It's kind of like if you have any smartphone that's made in like the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, you'll notice they started getting like more and more cameras on the back. Right. Yeah, and that's because yeah. we realized that it's really hard to make a camera that does everything while also being small. Like that takes really good wide angle photos. It takes really good photos in low light. It takes really good portrait photos. It takes really good landscape photos. Doing that is really difficult. They require cameras to be built in different ways. And so we did not notice the jumping spider doing this, but independently came up with the idea of, okay, well, I'll just make a camera that does this and one does this, and then they'll both feed into the same thing. We save space, and we do both of those jobs better than if we had to compromise. And that's the jumping spider's secret. It's specialized each of its pairs of eyes for different things. And so they they can do it all almost. I mean, they have the the kind of, you can't really sneak up on them very easily. They have right. Spider-Man spidey sense where like you try to approach them from behind, say if you're a researcher trying to catch them in a vial, and if you move too fast, they will just see you and jump away immediately. Right. Because they have eyes on the back of their heads. And 
they can see. Even though those eyes are, I say worse, because they are worse than the primary eyes, they are still, the secondary eyes of jumping spiders are still, of some species, are still higher resolution. They can see sharper images than, say, some of the best dragonfly eyes, where dragonflies, again, I mean, the really big, hefty dragonflies Mm. that have eyes that take up their entire, like, head. Yeah, which are famous Um, for their eyes, right? Yes. They still lose out to the the worse eyes on a jumping spider. (laughs) Fair play to them. I think that a fact that I was told about them once is that, and this, I don't know why it keeps, it comes back to me a lot because it's just Mm. so kind of evocative, is that, whilst they might not have a sense of what it is, they probably know what the moon looks like, like yeah. in the night sky, because they, yeah. they have the capacity to, to focus on that. That is kind of another great example. The moon in the night sky takes up about, you know, two fingernails of your thumb at arm's length, or maybe less than that. Mm. It's very small in the sky. True. And so for most animals, like, it just, it's hidden in the, it's blurred out. Um, and even if they're active at night, they they might see like a a faint, you know, a bright smear in that direction, but they don't really know what it looks like. Jumping spiders, if they were to come out at night, could potentially look at that and resolve it as, oh, there's a big round thing that's shiny in the sky. Um, and I have no idea what they'd think of it, but it is a really fascinating thought. I mean, they... my eyesight isn't great. So, Neither is mine. Until... So I'm I'm certainly getting closer towards the jumping spider in terms mm-hmm. of what I can see. But of course, they rarely wear glasses. But, <laughs> so the this vision they have, and they you mentioned they they've got eyes in the back of the head. They they can they're evading predators with this jump. Is this is this jump that they have? Is that tied to are they like ambush predators? Right. Yeah. So okay, that's true. We haven't we've talked about their eyes. They're called jumping spider. They are good at jumping. Um, but really their defining feature for me is their vision, but right. their jumping does make them have their, re- like a really distinctive way that they move around the world. Right. They, so jumping spiders, uh, they jump mostly forward. So a lot of people ask how high they can jump. They can, it, it's a forward leap. Uh, yeah. For some species, it can be up to 20 to 40 times the length of their own bodies, which is for like a human is uh, a football or a soccer field in one one bound. Be good. That is, you know, they jump anywhere. Be- Usually the jumps are much shorter. They hop little bits in places. But it means that with the combination of their jumping ability and the fact that they have pads on their toes that help them, and hooks on their toes that help them climb vertically, they are incredibly acrobatic animals. And the world to them is not the kind of flat world that it is to us. It is a very 3D world that's a huge jungle gym that they explore. And the way that those two things come together when they're looking for prey is that they are ambush predators, but they are also they also go out and, and hunt. So what a jumping spider will do is when it's hungry, it's expl- it goes out, they have little... They do make silk, so all spiders have the ability to make silk. Jumping spiders mostly use that silk to make a home for themselves. They make a little like sleeping bag tent thing in little kind of crawl spaces. But they'll come out from that during the day and they'll start exploring what's around them. 
they as they climb up you know the stem of something and hop over and then drop down whenever they're moving they're leaving a safety line of silk behind them so if a jump goes wrong or even if they need to mid-air adjust on their jump they can actually use that line of silk to adjust their like trajectory um and as they explore they will spot a prey item with their vision usually they will notice something moving or if it's still sometimes they can even pick it out from the kind of camouflage or the the environment around it because they have in many cases good color vision so they might be able to see color differences and let them stand out or just they can see the details well enough that say oh wait that's a leg that's not like a piece mm -hmm. of a leaf that's a leg sticking out of that that's something i'm going to catch and the, after that point it's kind of like if you took a tiger and you just shrank it down very tiny and let it climb on walls and that's a lot of the time what they do is they will start they'll, they'll like lock in place and they'll start slowly inching up onto their prey putting themselves in the right position and often they will lock onto the head uh especially for bigger prey items and then leap at it and bite down and that's how they catch their food i say that well that's how most of them catch their food there are some jumping spiders that have again ten thousand species you've got some yeah. really extreme examples out there um there are some that still do the original what we think might have been the original strategy of attacking web building spiders uh, portia is the most famous genus of that do this and it's like a bank heist they they are it's it it's you know if, if the regular jumping spider is like a smash and grab you know we're just gonna right. go and take the cash and run these this is the oceans 11 of the spider world where they are portia will see a web building spider out in the distance an orb weaver it's got to set up a huge web it'll see it out there you know two feet three feet away which for these animals is a huge distance remember where the spider is and then say okay how do i get to it and then they will come up with a plan i don't I, I know that that sounds anthropomorphic but they will lose sight of their target and they will circle around they will say like okay well i can't just jump at it i don't have a good launching point or it, it'll I'll hit the web and it'll eat me they will go around their environment lose sight of entirely of what they wh where their target is keep that mental map in their head position themselves come in from a completely different angle and there's a video i think it's a, a bbc or a nat geo video i think it's right. bbc of I Porsche. they literally drop down on yeah. like a single they like they like attach their silk uh, safety line and then just like literally like you're robbing a bank and you're like coming in from like the lights the the windows in the ceiling just whoop down and then when they're in distance, just drop right on top of the prey spider. And it doesn't stand a chance. I mean, it's completely caught by surprise because they, Portia isn't making any vibrations and because <laughs> they're not even touching the web and they can't see him coming. Um, there's a lot, Portia does a lot more. Portia improvises. Portia will like play songs on a web on some species that like sound like the, they'll pretend, they'll like catfish them. They'll pretend to be, a courting male 
And they'll be like, oh, hey, I'm, I'm just here to say hello. What's up? And then when the spider comes to investigate, Portia will bounce and eat them. And they will remember what works on these spiders and what works on those spiders and try different things if they don't have a strategy that they know that works. Uh, their ability to <laughs> improvise and to plan, it is incredibly impressive for an animal, especially their size. I mean, their brain is very tiny. Um, And I think there is some of that, too, that speaks to the connection that people can make with them is that we see that intelligence. We see that that ingenuity that not to say that orb weaving spiders aren't ingenious. They are capable of doing things that humans objectively could not do. If I blindfolded you and asked you to build a building the size of, you know, uh, roughly an apartment building, 10 story apartment building, be like, yeah, just build that blindfolded. Go now. (laughs) Yeah. Um, you could not do that. Um, and web bundling spiders can do that, but jumping spiders approach these problems in a way that like makes sense to us intuitively. And I think that that helps that like connection that we have with them. That video you talked about, I'm pretty sure I know which one you mean. It's like a David Attenborough one, I think. And I'm pretty sure I've played it for like the kids in my class in the past. It's a good one. Yeah. It's a smash, but you know, when you watch... When, when people make nature documentaries, there's a in telling the stories. There's always with hunting a tendency to create a villain and a mm-hmm. hero. So if you're if you're making a documentary about gazelles, this the lion becomes the villain. If you're making a documentary about the one I always think about is um seals, right? So seals, depending on if you're making a documentary about seals or penguins, mm-hmm. it's changed yeah. between yeah. being <laughs> yeah. heroes or villains. Absolutely. And in that video with the spider, typically, I think you would view a spider as a, as a fulfilling the villain role in the video, right? But I think because it has that that vision and those eyes, and it has it almost looks like it's making a plan. It's got a certain cheekiness to it, even though it's a a, a hunter, right? Mm-hmm. The kids loved it, and the kids were on its side, and they cheered when it caught the caught its prey and stuff. And yeah, so yeah, it's it's a really Again, Sorry, I've got morphism. Bells going on my end. We've had it all. It's all right. They're celebrating <laughs> the spider. <laughs> the storylines that we see in media, in <laughs> in documentaries in particular, because I think that there's there's a lot of it's this really contentious thing for me where humans learn through stories. I I used to think, and I like when I grew when I was growing up, and I was like, I'm going to be a scientist. I thought that you know humans learn through facts. We like we get a list of facts, and that's how we learn. And all the facts that we know about how humans learn, all the research says that no humans learn through stories. And so it's really important to tell stories to be able to get people to to make connections with animals, to learn about them, to see why they're cool. And at the same time, that the fact that we need to do that does sometimes really have to shoehorn certain animals into roles mm-hmm. that limit our understanding of what they are. Because, yeah, spiders are hunters. They are predators. So are humans. I mean, yeah. we are very vicious predators, potentially. Um, and so are things like dogs and wolves and lions that usually get the kind of, even if they're shown to be predators, they usually get to be shown, oh, yeah, they're predators, so like feed their family or raise their family and things like that. And I think sometimes spiders miss out that second half of it, the, the, the kind of why they're doing this and the, the, the softening of that image. Um, 
And it's it's a very difficult line that I don't have like a great answer for, but I think that I feel like when you're going to those stories, it's really important to kind of interrogate why you're doing that and saying, okay, is this, am I doing this because it's what I expect to do or am I doing it because it matches really well with the story of the animal? But because it's something that I've I've become really aware of, I mean, particularly recently, and I think particularly with, it's easier to do, honestly, with certain animals where um, I've recently kind of learned and had some exposure to how some of these documentaries are shot, where a lot of these things are shot on, not in the wild, but on stages nice. okay. where the in- the encounter is created by a producer, by a, a writing team, where they are writing, okay, here's an abstract version of what the animal would encounter. We need to get it in studio. We can't like go out and like cheer through these animals. They wouldn't do it out there in the wild, which I understand. But it, it, it means that instead of taking footage and kind of fitting it to a human story, we are writing a human story and then making footage to fit that, which sometimes can obscure the the kind of in-between, the kind of parts that don't fit that lead to the more interesting conversations. Um, and it's this whole, it's this, it's like an industry-wide kind of thing, kind of industry-wide question. I don't know how much is being talked about, but it is something that I've become increasingly aware of particularly because like you said spiders get fit into one very specific role and only rarely do they get to break out of that um like in the case of Portia where they are the hunter but they are the hero and i'm sure that it helps that they are hunting another spider that that gives them that advantage of oh it it caught the scarier looking spider so it's good you know when you're it's that whole thing about stories and morality and how we fit Mm. that to animals and I wish I had a, a like an answer for it, but more just an invitation to the conversation. I think is is the important bit there. Yeah, there's, there's that's probably not a good answer to it. I mean, it's you you can't like dispassionate facts are rarely going to work, particularly and they're not fun. To, no, and like it or not, most people aren't going to become arachnologists. You oh know, yeah, that'd be be a strange world, right? Like, be a cool world, but it would be, it would be, uh, yeah, there, there, there's more, would get more to life. <laughs> like, but as such, I mean, it, it's a little weird saying like how I think the world should be, but I do think that the world would be better if people had healthier attitudes towards animals. I agree. Particularly invertebrate animals. You do need to, uh, animals more generally, to be honest, I think that if we had better kind of less anthropomorphic views of them that'll be a good thing but you're not going to get that world through just presenting facts yeah that's, 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 that's a great but they your facts will always lose out to compelling narrative yeah 100 percent. and you, and you know that's kind of what we see in in everything that that talks about these animals going back to you know education but in fact especially journalism where i mean i <laughs> I've experienced this firsthand. Like I've written, I, there was a, I had a fellowship. I was working as a science reporter at the Philadelphia Inquirer and I would write, I wrote a couple of stories about spiders and I'd write them. And like the, my story is, you know, neutral to spider positive, mm-hmm. but the headlines, which is done by the marketing team would get these spins on them. Right. Oh, yeah. That are like more, 
maybe advertising friendly, like they pull in more clicks, but they are not that they, if you just see the headline, your what you're taking away from it is different. I mean, you see that in, in museums and zoos and anytime people are even teaching about these animals, a lot of the times the kind of framing, like the, the way that we're setting people up to think about the situation is starting at, come see the creepy crawlies or look at this this nightmare creature yeah. i see it a lot on youtube alien a lot of worlds. people who yeah alien world i mean alien like a, yeah aliens like kind of a borderline for me but i totally yeah. see that but like like alien world or like like terrifying nightmare world or mm-hmm. bizarre bizarre can also be neutral like there isn't a fine line but there are definitely some a lot of cases creepy crawly honestly is the biggest one that i see where like you you're saying Come see an animal that is creepy. Yeah. And even though I've, I've heard people say, yeah, creepy call actually means that they creep or they crawl. Either way, the way that people see the word creepy nowadays is the scary creepy and not creeping yeah. as in sneaking up on something. Um, and like if you come in with that headspace, it's a lot easier to learn the things that match that than to learn the things that contradict it that's just like how we work that's like how our brains work we're looking for things that match the the patterns that we kind of think are happening in the world uh because we like that feeling it feels really good (laughs) i totally get it um and it's a it's a it's a situation where i think that conversation is changing uh or how it's certainly i think that conversation is happening but it is something that it it is so pervasive. It is so everywhere that it's like a lot of cases you don't have the opportunity to be aware of it because it feels default. It feels normal. Narratives are compelling and more so than facts and things. Well, which is a, a, a troubling sentence from a political point of view. But the, you mentioned when we talked about your pet spiders earlier that some of the pet spiders are outreach spiders. Yeah. That's the other way, right? With kids mm-hmm. and with with. I guess people more generally, but kids, the ones that are going to be exposed to that more often is that when people encounter these animals in a safe environment and kind of can, can see them and can interact with them, can not yeah. interact in a, in a negative way, but you, you, you mentioned have that positive you, experiences. I yeah. Think that's the thing. So I was, I was going to ask you about that as in like, what has that outreach looked like for you and how have people responded to us? There's a process that I see a lot where, people will uh, will come up and they often either have a story or questions about the animals. Right. Even if they're like, oh, they're disgusting, but, and, but they have a question. And being able to answer their questions, being able to help them learn a little bit is, is there's like definitely that starts some of it. But being able to also see the animal and and see people around it and it's there and it's not like leaping at you. It's it's you can actually like take your time and observe it. I think it makes a big difference for a lot of people because a lot of their interactions with these animals aren't in safe, comfortable spaces. They're tied with a lot of really negative emotions. Even if it's something, even if you're not arachnophobic, if the only times that you see spiders are you go down in your basement at night to do laundry or whatever, and something like skitters across the floor really yeah. fast. That's startling. That's yeah. scary, right? 
if that's the only time that you've noticed a spider, of course, that's going to be the emotions that your brain learns to associate with it are negative. Anytime I have the opportunity to balance those scales a little bit and to add neutral or even positive emotions, like, oh, yeah, you know, I was scared, but I looked at it, I saw something that was surprising, and I learned a thing about it. That's huge. And I think building those up is what changes or helps change people's perspectives because yeah. it helps rewire those immediate emotional associations with the animal. For a lot of people who, you know, I, I get people come up who are, they're really scared of the spiders. They don't want to go near them. And there's a whole, there's a whole range of how you can approach it. You can, you know, have a model, you can have a, just a photo of the animal that they could take a look at and still get that positive exposure and then maybe work up to the the actual thing because arachnophobia and just the general kind of fear of invertebrates of arthropods that a lot of us have i've said it before but it's worth reiterating it is a learned behavior okay the extent to which humans say oh we have to i see that i have to kill it that is in our culture, that is not default mm. human. You see it come in with kids. You see kids early on, a lot of them are really curious. They may not love the animals, they may think they're gross, but they are. They want to learn about them, they want to pick them up, they want to see them. And a lot of the times, the reactions that their parents get are way worse than the kids, and as the kids grow up, they learn right, what is yeah. normal, what is expected of me. And just like anything that you learn, you can unlearn it. You can learn new things you can change your perspective. And being able to see that happen has been really big. One of my favorite things to do is, or that I've, I've done, uh, especially more recently, is like video classroom visits, where okay. instead of having a table at a museum, because that's only the people who come in, I can talk to a whole classroom of kids and I can you know, hook up my camera to my laptop and show them a jumping spider up close in a way that, would be hard to do for everyone to get to see it at once, but they can kind of appreciate it and ask questions right away. And you, you know, you get the mix of reactions, but you still get kids learn cool things and they'll remember them build. It's like I said, it's a, it's a, a, an exposure game, the mammals and everyone else, they all have their PR teams out there. They're everywhere. They've already got a bunch of good press and the spiders. I'm just hoping to like kind of get to that point of, yeah, you're seeing a lot of cool things about spiders too. Yeah. And there are a lot of cool things, right? Like we've There got are a, so many. We've got to fight I'd... that good fight. <laughs> Absolutely. I do realize you were asking about colors a while back, and I know I've Ooh. shifted our, our course of thought, but if you want to get back to cool things about spiders, well, I was gonna that's say, definitely one. There's, there's your leap, right? So, up oh, leap, bit of a pun. <laughs> you can now make donations to help offset the running costs of this podcast. If you're enjoying Grubbing the Filth, I want to make a donation like a benevolent Victorian. You can do so at buymeacoffee.com slash rubbingcast. But you can also write a brief message if you so wish. Any donations are truly appreciated. Thank you. If you look up some pictures of jumping spiders, you'll find all kinds of colours and patterns. I wanted to know more about this, so I asked Sebastian to talk to me a bit about the colouration of jumping spiders. I pointed out that coloration is yet another endearing aspect of the jumping spider, and yet another thing that makes them quite a friendly face, quite a 
powerful ambassador for the Spider Order. The colors are a really big part of it because it goes against that shiny black or like hairy brown spider kind of image. Yeah. The the idea that these animals can be beautiful in a way that we immediately recognize as beautiful, that are, that can be a piece of art almost, is kind of shocking and it definitely draws people in. Jumping spiders are incredible examples of this because they, in many cases, have evolved to be beautiful to each other. Right, okay. Male jumping spiders in many species do these courtship dances where they are basically putting on a performance for the female in hopes of convincing her to allow him to mate with her. Often, this is a dance. This is a dance and a song performance where they are waving their arms and their legs. They are vibrating uh, and sending songs through the ground to the female. So they will vibrate their abdomen and they actually have a little, some of them have this little like instrument, like a rasp, okay. um, like a washing board rasp on oh, nice. like, between the back of their head and their abdomen. And they'll, they'll make songs with that. Like a skiffle band. And it's all going through the ground. Um, and the female's listening through her legs. And sometimes they, they've got like some like bold stripes and markings. That's pretty, like I'd say that's your average jumping spider. And then there are some jumping spiders where they have really turned the dial up on all aspects of it. Okay. And so in addition to the dance and the song, they've got the, the costume. The males will have on their face, so the parts of their body that they can face towards the female. So often the face and the first pair of legs, sometimes the second or third pair of legs, they've evolved, I mean, I don't know how to say it, like these, these art pieces mm-hmm. of colorful hairs, of sometimes they even have, like their legs have kind of become these special shapes so that they can add more colors and designs onto them. And they use these in their dance and it's not just an all, you know, here's, let me show it, this static image. They use it like a dancer would. They're covering their parts. They're revealing certain things. They're, they're framing. In the, the group that I studied, uh, the Paradise Drumming Spiders, they do something really special where they, some of them will, they actually will create this like frame with their legs, right. their first pair of legs. And then they will use their third pair of legs uh, and they will move them into that frame. And it's almost like, you know, when you see in an art gallery where something's like presented in this very nice frame, it says, look right here. Yeah. And then they will move the, their fancy knees into view <laughs> to show the female. And that is something that we expect, we've been taught to expect of peacocks. Yeah. Of other fancy birds. It is not something that many people have been taught to expect of spiders. No. And so being able to show that, it hooks people because whether or not they were scared of spiders, this is like, oh, wait, 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 what is that? I mean, it's the reaction that I had, right? It's that moment that I really like to watch people having because it, it is the moment right before you get to make this incredible discovery that you're going to remember for the rest of your life. Um, and the jumping spiders, there are, it's not just the paradise jumping spiders, there are peacock spiders, which are the ones that are also really, really famous. Um, but those are just two kind of families or, or they're two genuses. There are many other genera that have also evolved these colors and these dances, and they all have their own flair on them. 
the peacock spiders have that abdomen with like the yeah. fan that opens out that it like has like a big like picture almost some of them like look like pictures of like an insect's head or something there are other ones that have these really long um, i mean peacock spiders i guess also have a really long third pair of legs there's one that has like that does like an entire like peekaboo dance where they hide their entire body underneath a leaf with a female sitting on top and they will just show one leg at a time and just be like, Ooh, Ooh. here's a leg. And the female will come look at it. And then they're like from behind, they'll lift the other leg and shake it. Um, and so they, they've, yes, yes, very much so. <laughs> and so they, they really have this across the family of drumming spiders, this really broad repertoire of performances. They've taken, you know, the, the one man show to a bunch of different angles on it. And, it's truly incredible to see and to listen to. If you haven't already, please go on YouTube and look up, you know, jumping spider courtship and you will get probably peacock spiders, but you might get some habernatus. You might get some paradise spiders in there as well. Um, there are some other really good ones that I've only seen in photos, but if you want to be one of the cool kids who knows what the, the new hip jumping spider is going to be like five to 10 years before, Look up Mexiganus Quetzal. It's, it's, we can get a live reaction here. Yeah, Mexiganus Quetzal, as in like Quetzalcoatlus. Yes. Oh, okay. Oh, I like him a lot. All right, so he's got... Very good spider. <laughs> so to describe... He... Big arms, right? So we've <laughs> got... Not only have we got... So we've discussed the kind of coquettish, here's my leg look for the spider, mm-hmm. for the art pieces... This spider has got rainbow coloration, which is really yep. nice, and it's kind of iridescent. It's also got like properly hench legs, <laughs> um, so it's got a kind of like I mean I don't know how it dances, but it's the first. Image, I don't either. I've only ever seen the photos. I feel I've in my head it's kind of like a macho man thing, like a sort of Mister Universe yeah. affair. Like you said, people don't expect they don't expect it at all. Showmanship from the spider world, right? Yeah, yeah, and a lot of, actually, a lot of the males do have the first pair of legs in the mature males, the adult males. They're bigger, uh, some of them, are they're bigger and longer, um, and in some species, actually, the males will have little fights with each other where they, where they do the macho man, my arms are bigger than your arms, I'm beefier <laughs> than you, kind of thing. But in this guy, he's got the arms fully out to the side, yeah. his, the, he's got the four big eyes underneath that, it's this bright orange-red. Um, and he's lifted up his his pedipalp, so actually his his arms oh, so are in there too. They they the thing is he's forming them together, so it looks like one mm. consistent shape. But it's actually a combination of his face, his arms, or his pedipalps, and then the first pair of legs behind that. And they've arranged it in a way that the colors all blend into each other. So it goes from almost like an iridescent rainbow on outside end of each outstretched pair of legs to this kind of deep red and then this bright red orange right under his face and the effect is powerful and let's not discount his lovely green eyes as well (laughs) no yeah the eyes are quite gorgeous ever since i saw him like that's the one that sticks in my head there are plenty of other really good ones there's stenoluralis there's all the like uh, there are these ones in like Southeast Asia that are like, they look like neon pink and blue. 
There and then there are ones that I don't even know about yet. <laughs> well, like you said, I mean, it's ten thousand, right? At least yes. So eleven, eleven I think now. There will be performances out there to, to dazzle, you know, waiting to be discovered. Absolutely. And yeah, like you said, they're they're not. They're telling a new story, if we're going to view it that way among the spiders. Mm-hmm. So we have hunting skills. We have this kind of relatable vision, funky dancing, great outfits. I'm I'm very taken with them. I can see why that I can see why that moment that you had pulled you into the spidery world because all you know I don't want anyone to think that we are saying jump and and we're not clearly the jumping spiders are the jewel in the crown of the spider world you know the spider know, world there's so many other good spiders oh my gosh <laughs> I can't no, maybe they're not as fabulous oh there are some that will give jumping spiders a full run for their money there are some tarantulas out there of course yeah yeah, yeah. that are that are ethereally beautiful mm. Is the only way I can I can I can place it, but I can, I can see why I I get why people are kind of you know for, for me as someone who likes these animals, like you said, my interaction with spiders is when they surprise me, when they come running yeah. across rooms, when I spot them in a corner, when they when I find them in a place that in the place that I've designated my own, that's when I tend to see spiders. Mm-hmm. If I saw one of these spiders, and not a tarantula, obviously, but like they they can help rewrite the narrative. I think. But yeah, the whole yeah. the whole spider world is so because I come to insects first. I think mm-hmm. that I've always fallen into that trap of seeing spiders as kind of like just a weird, slightly weird insects. Yeah, kind of like right. This this is an odd comparison, right? But like, if you think about genres of music, right, mm-hmm. and like the people who like those genres of music, stereotypically, you know that kind of like social distrust of people who like heavy music sure yeah i kind of see spiders as being like if if all invertebrate life this is a bizarre thing to be saying but if all invertebrate life is like <laughs> is is music spiders fit into the like the the heavy metal area or like industrial I, or something they definitely have that aesthetic i will sure. say music wise based on the music that i've heard jumping spiders make okay uh it is more like experimental techno, lots of lots of dropping the bass and stuff okay. like that, dubstep adjacent, but very mm. very experimental. But they have you're totally right this cultural connection to dark, heavy, yeah, like counterculture, right? Music counterculture, and I think that that's we kind of created that mm. we human culture where we said okay these are the bad animals yeah they're the animals that are that are dark and scary and that there's ooh, we'll put those over there and then people who have felt excluded from regular culture myself included in that yeah look at those and we're like well i mean if that's what is is anti regular mainstream stuff i guess that's me yeah which has has a and- pros and cons <laughs> to it right absolutely i i think that I've seen a lot of that, particularly when I started keeping pet tarantulas. Um, yeah. For a lot of people, that those are the kind of spiders, if they're going to have like a pet spider or be in close contact with a spider for long term, probably a tarantula because they were the most common pet spider and they still are. I started kind of, you know, looking into that space and, and learning about how to care for them on YouTube and stuff and on forums and everything. And there is this really strong connection for many I wouldn't say all or I wouldn't say most, but for many people of this is like a 
this spider, this animal, because of its cultural, its cultural connections of being, you know, dark and dangerous mm. and evil adjacent, me having it makes me stronger and more powerful right. and, and cooler. Like right? scorpions and snakes and I, as well, like kind of. Yeah. Yeah. That like, and I think there's like, there's definitely like this undercurrent of like toxic masculinity in there of I'm showing off how, how like badass and cool I am. Cause I have a spider and oh, yeah, look yeah. at it and it could kill you and making an accessory. Well, really. Most of them can't kill you, but yeah, it, it has this in some cases, those animals are used almost like a prop yeah. as a, like an, a, not to say that those people don't care about the spiders, but they are used in a way of when you're making a video about them and when you're just showing them to friends, they're used as like almost like a tool to scare other people to show how cool you are yeah. because you weren't scared by them. And that really upsets me. That particular interaction of using the, the animal's reputation as like almost a weapon or some form of like so social, uh, social power. Yes. Because one not an accurate representation of the animal most of the tarantulas in the pet trade are say all tarantulas i mean none of them hunt and eat humans no. so even the ones that are like more defensive or like easily spooked their main thing is oh god i don't want to die there's a giant monster doing stuff to me i don't want to die and for some of them they're the way that they try not to die is to try to scare you off but their end game is to get away from you mm-hmm but it also really reinforces that social learning of this is a scary animal. And it ignores a lot of the really other interesting things about tarantulas. When they're used as either like a punchline or as a as a a a fear tactic yeah. almost. There are YouTube channels and things like that that even though they give like good care information, I've really stopped watching because the way that the videos are edited and the way that the animal's kind of shot is from either has undercurrents or is just clearly from that perspective. And I find that really, I don't know, it feels uncomfortable. It feels like, like I'm trying, like, uh, basically, like, if I did that for, like, a dog, people would be like, what is wrong yeah. with you? Be like, yeah, this poodle, it could bite straight through your hand if it really wanted to. And it's like, yeah, like, yeah I mean, a dog probably could bite your hand and it would, you know, really mess up your hand. If it really wanted to, well, you, you do but sort like, of see it with dogs and things with like um, the pit bull. Pit yeah, they, right? they also have that mastiffs yes. and things. Yes. That kind of that kind of dog, it is used in that in that way to try and create in like an intimidating masculine yeah. energy, right? And I think thankfully a lot of the narrative around pit bulls has changed because they they're just they're big. I mean, they're dogs with like big jaws, sure, but they they are really cute and wonderful pets. I've met a lot of pit bulls that you know. Yeah. If you train them like any other dog, if you don't train them to like attack people, <laughs> yeah. then they're great. They learn what you teach them. Recognizing that, you know, shared, not humanity, but dogishness, do- dogitude, dogitude. I'm going to go with dogitude. dogitude shared dogitude of pit bulls is something that I, I want to see more for other animals too. The shared innate animalness, you know, moral neutralness mm. i I like him mel i like i i think all oh, that's that's great as a genre it has its problems but mm-hmm. like we're not saying right, 
that being involved in those cultures, those subcultures, is a bad thing, or that no, no, not that. at all. But it, it's it's that that case of wanting to use a living creature to essentially feed back into that culture mm-hmm. of distrust and distaste for spiders and for other creatures like that, which has been prevalent, yeah. I guess, from like from that side of things. I mean, when I used to go to uh, the guy that used to bring insects and spies and things to to my school when I was a kid, he, he had like, you know, he had the leather vest and all that kind of, he was into, mm-hmm. he was into that world and that's fine. And, and he was, from my memory, he, he spoke about these animals with compassion and with, and, and wanted to share how exciting they were. And mm-hmm. that's the thing we want, right? I, I spoke about this with, with, with T. Francis some time ago, that want to cr- yeah. have a, She's a perfect person to talk about this. Yeah, and well, there you go, because she's kind of into that kind of that world and that Absolutely, aesthetic. Absolutely, yeah. But is so, but spiders for her aren't part of that. Maybe that's how she came to them. But spiders are living creatures that deserve respect and deserve to be shared in mm-hmm. a in a way that is fair to them, right? And not kind of given our yeah. cultural baggage. Yeah, I think the the like the impact of it is something that's important to consider because like I'm all for having spider designs on all of your, I am currently wearing a shirt with a spider web. Um, and I have a lot of spider clothing and like pins and everything. And like incorporating that into your aesthetic, into your looks, into your style, into your art is awesome. And any community that is doing that, I'm really excited for. I think that just like anything else, when you are using something as part of your artwork, you have to consider that the impact that you are having, mm-hmm. the, the message that you're saying, you know, the same reason that you don't want to appropriate stuff that is really core to someone's culture that is not your own culture that you, are, you don't have a connection to and use it without understanding because that creates harm for those people because that right. that feeds into the expectations and the cultural ideas that like are are in in some cases like oppressing them in their lives you don't want to feed into the culture that is killing these animals that you on some level appreciate cuz you are putting them in your stuff um and it's, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, it's that moment of reflection that is really difficult because it is kind of taking you out of everything and it slows the process down. But ultimately, I think it makes for better art. And you, you if you understand what you're working with better, you're going to make more meaningful stuff. Mm. But it, it also, like I said, keeps these animals around so that other people can be inspired by them. Because if they're an inspiration for you and you're inadvertently creating a situation where they're going to be persecuted and killed and so on, they're not going to be around to inspire future Mm. artists. And like that is, I think, the opposite of what a lot of us, even a lot of the people who are using spiders in their media broadly, if you ask them, they say, oh, we don't want that. Right. Um. And I think that that just thinking about it from that perspective is important. So as someone who is like a, a communicator, 
mm-hmm. is that something that you have to consider when you're sort of creating the your brand i guess is what like you the, the aesthetics yeah. of what you do yeah it's certainly something that i've i've thought about early on i would encounter spider stuff that people would be like oh cool special love spiders let me send you mm. this and it would make me uncomfortable and for a while a long time i couldn't piece together why i couldn't fully understand why and it was because looking back these animals were portrayed in a negative from a negative perspective even if the information was positive yes and like that disconnect my brain really didn't like it and it just made me feel kind of not great and so whenever i am doing stuff with spiders whenever i'm talking about them whenever i'm you know, I take a photo, I'm posting it, and I'm telling a story about it. I try to do it from a perspective that is more aligned with the spider itself or with my experience of them. Um, I never want to be, I don't want to be like sanitizing what I'm doing in terms of like, if a spider startled me, that's okay. Yeah. If people ask me like, have you been, are you scared of spiders? I'll say no, because I'm not, but I've been startled by spiders many times. Sure. Um, because they can be startling sometimes when they move quickly yeah. or when I'm not expecting one. Like that's just, that's just how our brains work. No, I think that's quite, but, sorry, go on. Oh yeah, no, but, but the flip side of that is that I want to recognize that even though I, even if I've had these like moments where, you know, they were surprising or startling, that's not the animal's fault. Our you know, cultural baggage of the animal, it is not their fault. Just because something has scared you doesn't mean that it's okay to kill it. No, absolutely. And I think that that is sometimes an argument that that kind of makes sense to people because, you know, there are people who are terrified of dogs. They had a terrible experience with a dog. Right. They were attacked as a kid by a, you know, untrained dog or something. And like that can be really scarring. And it's really important to be able to acknowledge that while at the same time not say, oh, we should kill all dogs. No. Because that is an extreme opinion. And I think that the, but that is the logic that a lot of people apply to spiders. Is, oh, yeah, I had this terrifying thing with a spider. Therefore, I hate all spiders. Therefore, I kill all of them. And that extra step of you can be afraid of something. You can have something that, like, maybe you never think spiders are cool or interesting. Maybe you never think that they're beautiful i think being able to hold that idea in your head without saying and therefore they don't deserve to be around um or therefore it's okay if i just kill them whenever i see one is a really important part of being a good person right in 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 and being a part of like the the world that is not humans which is the rest of the world there's a there's a moral imperative really to I always want to use the word humanizing, but it's not humanizing, but acknowledging and respecting other living things. Respecting, respecting, I think, is the big one. Because there was a point where I my goal was to get everyone to love spiders. And, you know, if I had the, like, my wish, that would totally, well, maybe not high up on the priority list considering the state of the world, but sure. it's on the list. But very quickly in my outreach, I realized that is not a realistic thing, a realistic goal. And it's also kind of counterproductive because if I want everyone to get to this point, to be where I am at, that's not meeting them where they are. Mm. 
and that is ignoring their needs and values as a learner. And like one of the most important things about teaching is to meet your students where they're at and acknowledge that and like work from there. Because if you kind of set an arbitrary goal and assume that everyone's going to start at the same place and be able to get to that goal, you're actually going to miss out on a bunch of people who maybe would get there eventually, or maybe who would get halfway there, or maybe who would just improve slightly because you didn't support them in the way that they needed to. And that is something that I, I think that that part of it's empathy, but part of it's just understanding how people learn and understanding how people are. That is, has been a big, um, a big benefit to me as like, both as a scientist to be able to like share my science, but like as a educator with these animals is, is, acknowledging the reality of people's experiences and and setting realistic goals and also also kind of working with what they want to know yeah. working with what they're interested in i came to this not as someone who's frightened of spiders i think this is someone who's you know a fan of spiders but i i, I feel my sense of the spider world has been enriched and i'm looking forward to the next time i see a spider and having a little look at it and having a <laughs> a chance to think more about spiders so Thank you for for speaking so eloquently about spiders and, and for sharing that enthusiasm and things with me. I, I wanted to ask you before I let you go and, and thank sure. you again. It was a throwaway comment earlier, but it's something I'm really interested in, which is we can't talk to spiders, right? We can't. Right. We can relate to certain animals, mammals, I guess. We can have a pet dog that we play with and we can have mm -hmm. a pet cat that we interact with. And we can't really, tell me if I'm wrong, we can't really relate to spiders in the same way really right it depends on the spider i think okay. i think you can interact with them and it, the extent to which that interaction goes really depends on what kind of spider you're working with and how you're approaching them the biggest thing is to recognize that their senses are so different from our own right the reason that we can work with a pet cat or a pet dog relatively well is because we don't need to bridge a huge gap in the the way that we're interacting with the world dogs and cats relatively okay vision and they will look at us and they will pick up on what we're doing and they will hear what we're saying and they may not understand the words at all but they can hear pitch and yeah they can connect sounds with actions and stuff like that and they have that ability to learn spiders can do all of those things they can learn they can make you know they can learn to do behaviors they can learn to do some of them can learn to do tricks depending on your definition of a trick but you have to work with what they have you can't just say okay now be be like a dog or be like a human if you want to start somewhere jumping spiders are that closest point for a lot of people yeah. where you can interact with them visually one of my favorite outreach events i ever did was um it was an after school program for some kids here in pittsburgh we showed them a little bit about jumping spider vision and like show them a spider and kind of what they do and then said hey let's try to make videos that are fun for the spider to look at <laughs> and the kids had costumes and they had little cameras they filmed little short videos and we put them in front of a jumping spider in a big kind of arena and it had one video on one side of the wall and the other video on the other side of the wall and we saw which ones the spider looked at more often mm -hmm. right and like that's an interaction that is you're 
making a video for a different animal and seeing which one it want to looks at wants which one it finds more interesting yeah. to look at um and it was great i mean the kids really loved it and it shows you can have these kind of interactions you can have these kind of i wouldn't call that a trick but you can you can definitely train jumping spiders to you know associate colors with things and and so right, on really? okay yeah, yeah, yeah. They they are trainable. They even the the most the one that I've seen people use a lot, and I know at least some places might be using them for education and like museums and zoos. Is they will um they will follow a laser pointer like a cat, right, or they okay. will chase it. Um, and there actually is some really fun videos online of like a jumping spider that ended up on someone's laptop, and it follows their like mouse cursor <laughs> because they see a little thing moving, and they're like, "That's roughly the size of a thing that I eat." Yeah, let me like see what it is. Um, and they will chase it around and like try to like investigate it and stuff like that. So you can make that connection. Um, and because of the fact that we've happened to independently evolve to get into the world in the same way, the con the the there's less translation that needs to happen. Yes. In our communication, you can do similar things with other spiders. You just have to translate more. And the translations are messy, and sometimes you can only get really basic things across. Um, but it's doable. I mean, you know, one of the things that I do when I'm out looking for spiders and I see something that's built like a, a web and the spider's hiding, one thing that you can do is you can take an electric toothbrush and, like, tape a feather to the end of it and, like, turn on that electric toothbrush and, like, gently, like, rest the feather on the web. And you're now talking to the spider and you're saying, hey, there's food here. <laughs> And it'll run out and it'll like bite the feather or the blade of grass or whatever you use. And like that you're interacting with it. It's just the contact for that is it's pretty limited, yep. but it's also that we, we don't know a lot about a lot of spiders communication and the way that they would talk to each other and we can't tap into their systems. So there's a lot of opportunities. I, I mean, the reason that I, I mentioned that like spider eye test, like asking about their interests there are ways like part of my PhD was showing a female jumping spider, different animations of males and being like, okay, which of these two is more interesting to you? Right. And like, I made a whole rigged together system to understand based on her reactions, which one was more interesting to her. Um, but I had to really understand, okay, why does she do the things that she do? And, and what does interesting mean to a spider? <laughs> so you have to put a thought into it. You know, it's not, it's not, like a dog and a cat, there's there's kind of ev some evolutionary and like with the jumping spider, there's some evolutionary work that's been done for you. Yeah. For other spiders, you have to do more of that work yourself. Um, but you can get really cool stuff out of it. Well, let's say that we are able to get one step further, and let's say hypothetically we can sit this spider down, jumping or otherwise, and we can ask it a question. And oh, let's gosh. say hypothetically that the spider speaks good English and is going to be able to reply. <laughs> What what would you ask a spider? Oh, assuming by the way, there's a there's a further caveat here. The spider knows the answer. Okay, yes, assuming the spider knows the yeah. answer. Um, oh boy, I. So this is very hard because I I I have like there are a lot of questions that I would of like course. to ask spiders, but there is one really fascinating piece of research that just came out that has been in my head. And it is the discovery that jumping spiders experience REM sleep. 
Okay. The same type of sleep that we, many mammals, octopi experience where within that phase of sleep is when humans dream. Mm -hmm. It's impossible right now to understand whether dogs or cats or octopi are dreaming in the same sense that we are, or if they're just firing off patterns of neurons that make them look like they're dreaming in the way that we interpret it. And so I, I would ask the spider, what do you dream of at night? What a lovely question. I, I can't answer it. <laughs> Unfortunately. <No. laughs> Is it flies? Is it webs? I mean, look, I'm going to be honest. It's probably just like, yeah, I was catching some food. Mm -hmm. Like when my dog's dreaming, I'm pretty sure she's just chasing stuff. Yes. Because that's, I mean, that's her legs are, dream. are, you know, you know, she, I see her like basically running and she's a greyhound. She likes to chase things. I'm pretty sure. But having that firsthand account of what that's like, I think would be pretty incredible. Absolutely. Unfortunately, and this is a sad note to end on, it's not happening. But you know, <laughs> no. one day, fingers crossed. And again, just knowing about that kind of, uh, even the thought of them sleeping, you know, it's one extra thing to kind of unlock that world and to have a clearer sense of that, of the spider world. So, um, Sebastian, thank you for chatting me through it because it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. It's been so much fun to be able to talk about these animals that I really, really love and hopefully inspire some people to go check them out. Of course. Well, if people want to come and have a look at other things you're doing or other places you've appeared or any kind of Dr. Sebastian adjacent things, where can <laughs> people go in to do that? Yeah. So you can visit my website. It is www.spiderdaynightlive.com. That will link you to everything else. But where I'm most active is Twitter, where it's uh, just Spider Day Night uh, because of Twitter uh, restrictions on your or username. Also on uh, Instagram, I have a TikTok that has a few videos. I have a YouTube channel where you can find uh, both my dissertation defense, if you want to know about my research. Sure. You can find some of the research on tarantula eye evolution that I've been working on since my PhD, as well as a workshop on macro photography. If you want to start getting into yeah. photographing these animals, you can see some of my photos and learn how to do it with like really bare bones equipment. And finally, I'll plug Crash Course Zoology, which is a series about all animals that I designed for uh, the YouTube channel Crash Course. You can also find that um, following all the links on my page. And it is this whirlwind tour of what makes animals animals and examining every bit of diversity uh, on like each of those aspects on what makes them who they are. There's a lot of really good spider and arachnid content in there because as the series designer, they could not stop <laughs> me. Um, but you will learn about every animal or every group of animals, not just the ones that you're familiar with. Fantastic. Well, that's food for thought and, and somewhere to go and, and to learn more because, you know, like we've said, it's a point we keep reiterating. There is always so much more and all when it comes to the spies, when it comes to anything. So I hope that people do go in and have a little bit of spider research. Thank you so much again. Thank and um, yeah, all the very best. Have a, have a lovely day, Sebastian. Yeah, you too, Tom. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Cheers now. Grubbing the Filth was written and produced by me, Tom Sharp, with music by Will Hatton. And thanks again to Dr. Sebastian Echeverry. You can find Grubbing the Filth on Twitter, at GITF Podcast, 
or on Instagram at grubbinginthefilth. You can also email grubbinginthefilth at gmail.com.